Hey, Katie. Hey, Ben. And hey, Walt. Hey, Katie. Hey, Ben. Hey, Walt. We're all listening to Linear Digressions. So if you didn't catch last week's episode, uh, who's this Walt guy? Friend of Katie's, software engineer turned data science scientist, and uh, we are picking his brain because he has seen both sides. Uh, my side is a software engineer and Katie's side is a data scientist. I mean, Walt is many things besides just my friend and a software engineer and a data scientist. I, I assume you play at least two instruments, right? Uh, I think four if you count the washtub bass. <laughs> right. Nice. Uh, I play I play five. We should jam. Except I'm not in Chicago. Oh well, oh. I'm gonna be in California soon, actually, and Are I'm you definitely serious? bringing my washtub bass. Oh, nice. Okay, yeah, we'll uh, we'll make something happen. <laughs> we'll just we'll just jam, and that'll be an episode, <laughs> and people will be like, "What is this?" Anyway. Um, so yeah, Walt is joining us today. Uh, in the last episode, we talked about kind of the transition between software engineer and data science scientist, and what are the things that each one of them doesn't know about the the secret life of the other one. And one of the interesting topics that we picked up and then set aside for later, and we are picking up again to start, is some of the software engineering best practices that you might not necessarily know if you're a data scientist, but that make your life better. Um, so specifically, a lot of data scientists have a background in like, so I'll, I'll use myself as an example. I have a background as a physicist. So I know a lot of things about physics, but one thing that physicists don't do as much as software engineers is think very rigorously about their code in, in certain ways. And so when I started working as a data scientist, I had to clean up my code game a little bit. And there were all kinds of things that I learned from Walt and other folks about things like testing and version control and keeping my code nice and clean and all these things that I had never thought about before. So I wanted to, to unpack that a little bit more uh, for some of our data scientist friends who are sitting here wondering what the big deal is about all this stuff. I am very happy to talk about these things. As I mentioned last time, I felt like, you know, what I experienced joining the data science department as someone with a bit more of a background in software engineering as people were just really excited to uh, hear about like the things that I had picked up over a few years of trying to make a living doing this thing and they were excited and it all ended up coming out very nicely. I don't even know if I have anything else to teach to you people at oh, this point. <laughs> so I remember right around the time that you were switching into our department and you came and gave this talk about testing and like mocking and it felt like magic so testing might be a good a good place to start here because um, I had never heard of code tests before I started working at Civis so maybe starting from just the bare basics of why what code tests are and why you want to do it take me through that journey again sure so I have a feeling that if you have ever written code you probably wrote it and then you wondered, hmm, does this work? And then you ran it, you know, maybe against some toy example, maybe you just like had uh, like a CSV file with like five rows or something. And you ran it and you said, okay, uh, that looks like it worked. And then you went and you changed your code. And you said, oh, is it still working? And then you went and did this process again, like this manual process of write some code, then run it against some example, and then stare at it. 
And it turns out that this process of like, here's an example and let me try to run it and let me see, hey, does that make sense? You can in fact automate that so that instead of you having to do this and stare at terminal output or whatever you look at, a computer can do this and say, oh, things are still working or oh, you broke things horribly. <laughs> you need to go back to work. And also for context, uh, in my work at Facebook, the, the system that I work on has several hundreds of tests, right? So if I were to actually do that manually, it would take me several hours. But if I hit the run button on my tests or if they run automatically, uh, granted they're different tests, but uh, then maybe tests that you guys might be writing, but they'll run in a lot less time than if I were to do it manually. Well, I am very jealous of you that you have <laughs> Sorry, my tests all take 20 milliseconds to run. <laughs> uh, that sounds like a wonderful place to be. So because... how what, what, what does testing look like in the world of data science then? Interesting question. So one way to test things would be to, you know, set up some model and then write a test and say, hey, you know, we fit this model and then it's able to predict that this class has a likelihood for this particular row of mm. 0.135767, like this like really horribly long floating point is kind of a naive way to do things, but mm -hmm. it ends up turning out. So essentially what you're doing when you're writing tests is you are stating invariance about your code. And what, how would you define the word invariance? Um, things that it must or must not do just kind of true true facts about the universe and these true facts about the universe well, include this code that you have just written <laughs> so when you run your test it says okay when i put this in something like this has to come out otherwise my universe of this of this code is broken <laughs> yes uh, so like one maybe like slightly simpler example than the thing I was getting into, which is a good place to start, would be if you were trying to write a function that, say, takes a list of numbers and sorts them. And so your invariant in that case would just be like, no matter what numbers I put in, if I read the list back, every successive number must be greater than or equal to the one before it. So that's an invariant you can state about properties you can say with confidence should be true about your code. And then you can throw a bunch of inputs in and then run the tests and see if those are true. And so you might, probably not for the sorting because you know this is just kind of like stack overflow, copy and paste, these sort of problems. Yeah, <laughs> <that's true. laughs> uh, but for more interesting problems, you might at some point realize there are edge cases your code hadn't handled or um, or a lot of I feel like what they do is it's because a lot of so a lot of why I think tests are great and neat and why I'm so very jealous of you Ben in your hundreds of tests in milliseconds life is it gives you because coding is such a social activity and you spend so much time reading other people's code and writing it and working with other people's code it just gives you a lot more confidence when you are diving into this code base written by a bunch of people and maybe they don't even work at this company anymore and you sit in there and stare like, what were they thinking? Who are these people? Where, hmm. And why did they even leave? It's such a great job. <laughs> <laughs> and it gives you the confidence to make changes and know, despite the fact that I've changed this code written by someone who disappeared five years ago, everything's going to be okay. 
the tests pass, all, all is good in the universe. Fingers crossed. That, of course, only works if you have a, a good suite of tests. Uh, but assuming you're thinking critically about your problems, you probably have a, have a decent set of tests. Well, and this gets into, actually, I'm going to use this as a segue into one of my favorite black magic pieces of testing, which is, so a lot of times I was writing, I was writing some code, this was a few months ago, where a significant part of what the code is doing is hitting a database and returning back input from that database and using that input as like a configuration for like a thing that it would do and blah, 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 blah. And so I needed to have code that uh, was basically looking at the stuff that I put into that database query and the stuff that I got back out. So, so like maybe as a concrete example, let's say that you're trying to test a, a function that's supposed to insert a row into your database. You don't want it to be when it runs that test that it actually inserts a row into your database because then every time you run your test, it's gonna be like arbitrarily adding all kinds of stuff to your database. And so this gets a little bit more into mocking, which is one of the most magical things I think I've ever seen. Uh, and I remember Walt talking about it in his testing talk a year ago, and we should bring this magic to the podcast right now, if we could. I think we can do it. So if we are thinking about this in terms of stating invariance, in terms of stating true facts about our code, one of the facts we probably do not need our test to assert is if you put, like, my, a database is capable of reading SQL. So you might ask, does my test need to hit the database? At that point, what is your test testing? Is it testing your own code or is it also testing this thing called the database? And I think it's fair to say that the people who wrote the database are also good engineers who probably have their own suite of tests and they are probably pretty good at handling SQL. So part of it is just answering the question, what am I testing? As well as all the other questions you ask, like, uh, you know, do I want to like actually have to take the time to write the database and all this messy thing? So if you're not, if you don't want to test the database, but you still need the database to return something to test your own code, how do you get around that? So this is the land of mocks and mock objects, which, so your code might take in a database object, which has some function that accepts a query string or accepts some bit of SQL and turns it back. And so it turns out that your code will run equally as happy if this object that, you know, runs queries and returns results, if it is actually hitting a real database, if it is actually parsing the thing and, re and reading the disk and doing all of this crazy, crazy hard work that it takes to write a database, or if it just says, yeah, return five. That, oh, um, interesting. So, <laughs> so you hit the database and you get back the number five and it does all this work on the database, but you're saying in, in your test, instead of hitting the database, just hit some function which simply returns five and doesn't do all of the database work. Exactly. So then what you're testing is that your code sends something into the database and given a given some sort of legitimate response from the database that it acts correctly. So you're just testing, hey, 
if I accept a response from this database, do I do the right thing rather than does my database do the right thing? Because it probably does. Walt, something that you alluded to briefly earlier that intrigues me is the idea of coding as a social activity. Can you unpack that a little bit? So a thing that is true about just really most any piece of code is that it is read many more times and it is written, which you're maybe not conscious of if you're just working on your own in isolation, but as soon as you join a company full of people, or if not at a company, if you're working on an open source project with other folks, the reality is that your code is read by many, 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 many people and written only by you. And so keeping this in mind, trying to understand that your so programming is kind of a funny art because you really have two audiences. One is the computer. You are trying to produce binary that it will run and that it will run quickly and it will run correctly and it will do the right thing. But your other audience is not a computer. It's your coworkers, it's your you know, friends on GitHub and these people in this open source community who the code needs to be written for their sake as well. Like they need to be able to read it and understand it. And once they can read it and understand it easily, can contribute, can help you make it better, um, can reason about these things that you have written and extend it and not just walk away from looking at the things you wrote and scratching your head and saying, who is this crazy person who has tormented me with this indecipherable code? How do you know when you're writing code that it's gonna be legible to somebody else? Because it makes sense to you, because of course it does, because you're the <laughs> author, you're sitting there writing it. <laughs> I feel like that is a question about like the fundamentals of human frailty. <laughs> <laughs> How do you communicate? How do we talk amongst ourselves? I feel like it's not a terribly different answer than just thinking about writing generally. You should always just, if you're writing code or if you're writing an email or speaking, you kind of need to be constantly thinking about what does this look like from outside of myself and how can I make this clear? And a lot of that, especially when it comes to code, is you know less true of you know normal writing but making an effort to make things doubly clear to add twice as many comments as you think to add twice as much documentation as you might think it does at the time i don't think there are pretty seldom times when i've looked at a body of code and felt like oh these variable names they're just too explanatory. <laughs> <laughs> this, this also goes to something else that I, I mentioned a little bit earlier, it, which is linting. This is another thing that I discovered when I started writing code that other people had to read. So a linter, I had the pleasure of uh, explaining this to someone the other day for the first time. If you haven't used it before, it's like a formatter for your code, and it says like the rules for what your code how your code is supposed to be formatted so it can be things like how many characters in a line like what are valid variable names how many blank lines between different types of statements it can catch certain types of bugs actually which is kind of nice like if you misspell a variable name it can catch that i'm probably forgetting some other stuff but linting is it's it's dead easy it's just the silliest thing in the world but it's one of the things that can make code readable 
that was not readable before. So I think that's another part of this coding as a social activity. So if you are working in Python, the community has these really pretty arbitrary rules around a line is not allowed to be more than 79 characters, and this is just the law. And in a lot of ways it's silly, 79 is a very arbitrary number, but in a lot of ways as a person reading this code, it, if everything is written in the same style with under the same set of arbitrary rules, it allows you to focus more on what is being said rather than how it's being said, because the how it's being said part is just standard and consistent, and no matter what you're looking at, it's the same way, and you're just able to focus on the what, like the what is this actually doing easier. And so it's just the kind of considerations that you start making, as arbitrary as they may be, the kind of considerations you start making, understanding code, uh, coding as a social activity and focusing on those other human readers rather than the computer reader. You know, uh, that whole 70, 79 line, uh, sorry, 79 character line or 80 character line or 100 character line, and that's how, that's the max characters thing, that always felt really arbitrary and kind of silly to me until I, I guess until I saw that indeed co coding is a social activity. See, I've always had a setup where my monitor is a certain, is, is uh, I guess wide enough where I can always put uh, code side by side, no matter how long it is pretty much. But when I see all of these other developers at Facebook working in different ways, maybe some of them organize their windows differently, or they, they put their uh, text editor taking up two thirds of the width of their screen or something like that. If you do indeed enforce that 80 character limit, which seems kind of silly if you're working just with yourself, you find that actually if a lot of people are looking at this code, uh, these different people can start doing these things, like, for example, always being able to put uh, 80 character width or less code beside some other code, right? But if you had occasional lines that went to 100 characters, 120 characters, 150 characters, you, you suddenly can't put the code side by side anymore. You can't have one function that calls another function side by side and kind of understand the context of the way that they interact because you, you can't put the code side by side while you, while you can see everything. And now, just to pull it all together, I'm gonna add that the way that we have our tests set up on our production code bases here, and this is probably pretty common, is we have a linter that's running in our automated test suite. So if you try to commit code that doesn't adhere to the rules of the linter, it will automatically fail your tests and you have to feel bad about yourself. And then fix your code. <laughs> so it's all connected. You know, we have that at Facebook too, except it says, please provide an explanation as to why you broke this linting rule. <laughs> because every once in a while, there's there's a legitimate reason, but that's like 0.1% of the time, there's a legitimate reason. Oh, the other 99.9% .9 of the time, yeah, you should probably go back and fix that. Is there and like a kind person of who reviews that and you. decides if it's a good enough reason? Uh. Not well. I mean, your code reviewers are so like yeah. at Facebook and at most companies, uh, most software development firms. Um, if you want to commit some code into your code base, uh, obviously, the company wants it to be of sufficient quality, and so uh, you will have one or more code reviewers who are required to look over your code, and maybe even for really critical code that could just break everything, you might want to have multiple reviewers all accept 
your um, your your diff or your code. Got it. I see. So now I want to. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Um, so perhaps unrelatedly, but also relatedly, are you actually are you familiar with the apocryphal story of where this magical number eighty comes from? I am not. Uh, so the story I heard is 80 was how wide IBM punch cards were back in the day. Oh, no way. We just carried that <laughs> forward. Regardless of whether that's true, that is really fun. <laughs> <laughs> we say a lot of stuff on this podcast, yeah, that may or may not be true. So let's just go with it. That's our time on our tradition here. <laughs> yeah. So I want to introduce a plot twist. You may be, you, you the listener, not you, Katie uh, or Walt, but you might be sitting at home listening to our podcast or driving and thinking, you know, I program on my own. You're talking about coding being a, a social thing. That doesn't really apply to me. Well, as it turns out, it does apply to you. And I'll, I'll give you the context of my own experience, which is that when I was working on software projects with just me, there were these... There, there were these crazy versions of Ben, Ben of the past, who kept committing really crappy code, you know, and then Ben of the present would look back and be like, oh my God, what who kind of idiot, monster. Like, monster, monstrosity this is, this function is horrible. Um, so I'd go and I'd fix it and I'd make it really nice and pretty. And a couple months later, I would be sitting in the same place, looking at the same file, looking at the same function that's all cleaned up and be like, oh my God, this is, this is, disastrous this is horrible who wrote this because as an engineer even if you're working alone you're constantly growing right so you're not just coding necessarily with other human beings but you're coding with uh, yourself of the past and you're coding for yourself of the future uh, so if you're if you're a, a good Samaritan and uh, a, a good steward of your of your code base even if it's just you who's working on it, the you of the future will appreciate the extra comments because while you may know why you did this now in three months or six months or a week you probably won't remember been there yep i have also bumped into this nasty behavior from past walt too We've had a good time here tonight, but uh, the the timer on our recording is growing a little long. So I think we're gonna I think we're gonna call it a night. Um, this has been really fun, and I especially want to thank Walt for coming in and sharing all of his lore about IBM punch cards <laughs> and people that we used to work with and etc. And uh, I guess that was the other episode a little bit more. But anyway, yeah, this has been really fun, and thank you for sharing your wisdom, Walt. Oh, well, it's been lovely talking to you, Katie, and lovely talking to you, Ben, as well. And uh, have fun in California. I will. Linear Digressions is a creative commons endeavor, which means you can share or use it any way you like. Just tell them we said hi. To find out more about this or any other episode of Linear Digressions, go to LinearDigressions.com. And if you like this podcast, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes so other people get to listen to this content too. You can always get in touch with either of us. Our emails are ben at lineardigressions.com and katie at lineardigressions.com in case you have comments or suggestions for future shows. You can tweet us at lindigressions. Thank you for joining us and we'll see you next time.